0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. And welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode eighty-four of the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petron's and I am the host of the Petronas Podcast. So today, um, another special treat for you. I'm going to do an introduction and recap of the market. It is May twenty-two, uh, May May twenty-second, uh, twenty twenty-three. It is Monday. It is the evening right now, and we have seen a lot of a lot of volatility in a, in a few buck range for oil prices, largely because of the debt ceiling talk. So last week, I gave an introduction to the podcast, and we talked about the looming debt ceiling talks and all the politics involved this is still an ongoing thing um, we had Joe Biden in um, back and forth having conversations um, cutting short meetings in Japan and Hiroshima with the g7 because of the debt ceiling um, so lots going on there and we'll talk about that and where oil prices are at the volatility around that um, and what's going on with yields and and things like that in in that nature because of these debt ceiling talks so um, this podcast however is a, a Part one of an absolute soup to nuts conversation. You're going to totally enjoy it. This is the presentation that I gave to the Society for Petroleum Engineers Midland Basin, Permian Basin Chapter in Midland, Texas. It was an absolute treat. Super, super fun presentation and talk. Um, I open up this talk by talking about the groupthink in the industry and asking folks where they see oil prices. And uh, predominantly everyone in the room really saw oil prices going north. However, they did not feel the same way about demand. And that's where throughout the presentation, I walk folks through that of why you would have high, oil, you know, why, why you couldn't be bullish on high oil prices, what supports that bullish thesis and what doesn't support that bullish thesis. And the demand side does not support the bullish thesis. There are many elements that support higher prices, but those can be pretty volatile. All right. So the presentation was recorded on May 2nd, um, earlier this month. It is a, um, it's still extremely timely that day. We had prices come off between five 30 in the morning when I did the, you know, put the slides together for the presentation to the afternoon when I gave it, um, prices had come off a few bucks because of Chinese demand concerns. Um, so just, it's a note of how we're seeing these few dollar swings in oil prices, which are really serious. Um, so as of today, big news was that Chevron buying PDC here in Colorado. We'll talk about that um, in this introduction. Um, the debt ceiling talks, though, I think we really need to talk about that. And that's that they're ongoing. So, you know, in last week's podcast, I was talking about how Janet Yellen had made the comment that basically it's June 1st or June beginning of June ish. Um, and she's reiterated that of uh, that. You know that's when we are start running out of money. Now, to actual default on the debt is to actually not make payments. That's a default. So there's a lot of volatility in the market. You're not seeing quite baked into stocks, right? They're not baking in that we're going to default on our debt. The short-term rates that we are seeing and the volatility in oil prices, we are seeing that. So when you see positive sentiment come out from the um, anything positive in the news, depending on if you turn it on in the afternoon, if you turn it on at night, if you turn it on in the morning, whatever's coming out between McCarthy and Biden, if that's positive, oil prices go up. If that's Negative oil prices go down a little bit, um, and it's not saying that they think it's going to default. It's just what this means for the economy. And as I've mentioned before, you know, oil is being is being traded, and it's being traded as a a, a sort of recession and economic um, indicator. So right now we are seeing WTI at 71.99 on as of May 22nd, 2023. We are seeing uh, Brent at 76.50. Um, we are really seeing that narrowed, uh, really nice narrowing of that Brent WTI spread, which I think is, is probably helpful for a lot of folks on the midstream side. Um, Henry Hub is at 239. We have seen a massive drop in Dutch TTF. Um, Dutch TTF right now is under 10 bucks. It is at 9.42. I think that is extremely important to just put into perspective, folks, that we had a hundred dollar uh, NEMA BTU in. Just August of last year, and I was working with clients um, that were in Europe at, at last year, and it was very hard to get folks to appreciate that prices would likely really come down—not necessarily to these levels, but that you wouldn't maintain those high levels that we were seeing last summer. And here, here we are now. I'm not saying I, you know, forecasted the a warmer winter by any means, but volatility in gas prices and just volatility in commodity prices really, really important to appreciate when we're thinking about this business and the nature and the boom and bust nature of this business. Um, that being said, so you know big pressure on net gas. Now the yields. So with all this debt ceiling debate and this stuff talking, what you're hearing overwhelmingly in the market, just to summarize for you, what I, what I listen to day in and day out is that most analysts are not projecting that, you know, every, nobody wants to default on the debt, right? That is not something anybody wants. And it would be very, it would be very bad for the U S economy because, um, you would have to start thinking about payments, which payments you're making, which payments you're missing. The big bad part would be that is if, 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 our credit rating, what that means for the actual, our actual standing and an actual real default, as opposed to, you know, kicking the can down the road and extension. And what we're likely to get is, and potentially, I think this is what the Republicans and McCarthy don't, does not want to do is sort of agree to what, uh, the Democrats and Biden want, and then say, Oh, in September, we'll work on this because just kicking the can down the road. And then will they actually agree to it? Um, and so we, we have, big problems. We have a lot of spending. We have a lot of inflation. And that is something that I think we do have to appreciate in yield. So we are seeing the 10-year yield has really come up. It is at 3. um 3. 7 to 1% right now for the 10-year. That has really come up. Um, we are seeing the 30-year mortgage is almost at 7% now. We're back at 6.95%. So when you hear all this talk about how you know, it, it you can literally do the same thing on on almost every news piece and hear a positive story and a negative story, especially for home builders. When mortgage rates go down, home builder sentiment goes up, and that's the, the home builder sentiment going up this quickly. Um, given that we haven't had a fallout in home prices, is pretty ridiculous, right? We just it, 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 we cannot have that positive um, that positive sentiment, and that is what's fueling inflation, and that's what inevitably is going to cause this all to to drop, um, at, and that in uh, commercial real estate as well, but that high, those high mortgage rates and the high rates that we're seeing for short-term treasuries for the month, one month, if you're looking at a one month CD or three month CD, you're looking at over 5% yields on this. And that is baking in this risk and volatility that we don't yet have a debt ceiling deal. Um, So that is really serious. Again, I'm not going to go into this until, I mean, it's still, it's very ongoing. So um, where, you know, Jenny Yellen coming out and reiterating, I think part of why she keeps doing that is that, you know, really putting a sense of urgency that we have to come to a deal that we have to make our payments and that is really serious so that is ongoing we will be coming back and talking about that um you know Chevron bought PDC I I that's a obviously these companies have a lot of cash so it makes sense PDC is a big um does have assets in the Permian but they're also a very big player here in Colorado in the DJ basin when you buy a DJ company it is really about buying permits um I know folks don't want to say that and PDC is a well-run company they bought Great Western um when they bought that Great Western purchase last year that included I mean they had uh they had drilled but uncompleted wells in there. so. um, But they were purchasing Great Western because they were purchasing the permits. Because after SB 181 in Colorado, which passed in um, a couple of years ago, after that was pushed through, we have had a massive reduction of permitting because you it's very, very hard to get permits here in Colorado to drill oil and gas well. So a lot of this consolidation, this consolidation was driven off a, a very strict regulatory environment, the inability to get permits. I talked about that with Daniel Siever in previous podcasts, definitely worth taking a listen. So that consolidation though, I don't, it, it's not positive for Colorado business in terms of oil and gas production. It means that if we're thinking about where pu- big publics are, they reduce output. And so I don't think you're going to, you're going to see less activity in Colorado. PDC has been drilling with several rigs in Colorado. Um, they've been really leading the charge. So You have seen Chevron buy them now that at over $7 billion, that's, we'll be talking about more of that in the future, I'm sure with, with guests. Um, But that means that there will be consolidation and there will be job losses in Colorado, typically with every purchase and consolidation. And I really do blame the, uh, you know, that that's a good buy for Chevron, but that is not a good sign for the regulatory environment in Colorado. And I I think, um, you know, that, all the restructuring from the COGCC, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, has driven that forced consolidation for the need to get permits. We wouldn't have had the consolidation we've had in Colorado if companies could act- actively get permits. And that, that's not good for business, just overall and in general. So uh, Jamie Dimon, the two things I'll, I'll talk about the market real quick before talking about the what we'll be getting into within this podcast um, is so Jamie Dimon came out and he said that uh, he he used a seven handle on interest rates, that interest rates could go as high as 7% because he's been he's been on the record from Davos earlier this year and even before saying that we have sticky and persistent inflation and the interest rates could end up going higher than a lot of people expect. I I am. I've been in that camp for a long time. Um, Not that I think the Fed is doing a good job of articulating that and letting the market understand it, but that the inflation is very sticky and persistent, and it's hard to get inflation down. And it's really, really important that we do. And this housing, that housing piece I was talking about, is a critical component of that. Now, and the Fed is is pretty lost right now in how they're thinking. We had a couple comments come out from bullish comments uh, or, or sorry, hawkish comments from the Fed, from different um, Fed folks saying that they think we're going to have to have a Fed rate hike. Now we had a, um, we, in this podcast that I talk about, it was the day before we had a Fed rate hike of, of 25 basis points. And we have, um, we're now folks are talking about a potential, uh, not a pause, but the Fed actually not having a meeting in June and then then hiking rates later. So I think it's it's just buying them time. I don't think Jerome Powell's doing a very good job. He's not articulating well to the street what's going on. And, and we're seeing this this volatility. You literally had you you in March you had folks betting on a 50 basis point rate hike. Um, then you had your banking crisis begin, and then you had the market base baking in rate cuts, and now you have Folks like Jamie Dimon saying seven percent—that is pretty all over the map. So that's really serious. That's not giving the market clarity, and it's hard. Um, that that makes things difficult and and hard. And you do see some. I mean, depending on how strong the dollar is, you do see weight on on WTI on, on oil prices as well. Um, and lastly, I'll just note: really watch the China space. Um, the Chinese debt story. Uh, Bloomberg's had a couple articles on this. Of. Uh, the big Chinese debt is huge. And the reason that matters is because, you know, they ripped off the zero covid band-aid. Everybody thinks that they're they, you know We keep waiting for this good data to come in. It doesn't come in. China cooks the books anyway on the data, but that data, positive data, is not coming in. And we would have seen that. We would have seen that impact oil prices. And you know, OPEC cut prices. You know, cut output going into recession largely because, partly because of the China story and it not being as bullish. Interesting to me, at the International Energy Agency is baking. You know, they're saying we're going to have rising demand in the back half of this year basing that on Chinese demand. I don't think that's probably accurate. I don't think we have, you know, the China story is very messy and we don't have a lot of color in data. Um, and so right now it's being service driven. We're not seeing this big growth. And partly that's because they have so much debt um, and that they can't just throw in infrastructure. Um, they can't just throw, you know, infrastructure and spending at this. And, you know, they could also be wanting to do other things and planning for other things. Um, and that's faultily that folks are not baking in as well. Um, and then there's just ongoing tensions within the U.S. So they put a ban on Micron or put uh, I- imposed bans uh, and implications for Micron for the chips saying that this is a security risk in China. This is a tit for tat going back and forth. We've seen Montana ban TikTok. Um, Chinese TikTok is actually suing them. I may, that's, that's just completely hypocritical given a country that doesn't have rule of law and you, can, you can't actually do that in China. Um, but the point is there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of tension. And so when Biden comes out and says he thinks those tensions are going to be eased, I think that's, that's pretty ridiculous. Um, but we did see, you know, he was in, Biden was in Hiroshima, um, you know, in, in for the G7 meeting. Um, we, there have been increased uh, G7 communiques on energy that have come out. Not, I mean, they have not been positive. They haven't been really strong on anything. Um, I'll be talking about that more later in future podcasts and, and definitely talk about it in this one as well. So within this podcast, before I let you go and take a listen, this is part one of this Society for Petroleum Engineers Midland talk that I get or talk I gave in Midland on May 2nd. Um, this is a complete soup to nuts presentation. I will be posting the whole thing on YouTube as well, um, but I'll post the second half of this and put an introduction to this for next week's episode. But this is, um, I opened this podcast out with talking about, you know, where do folks see oil prices? where and, and, and sort of doing this to reiterate where I see the industry having a real group think around higher oil prices. Um, and not having a group, but not being bullish on demand and how that's really problematic. And I talk about this also in the context of investor pressure and ESG and the energy transition and why it is so important for oil and gas companies to start explaining to the street that they're that their product is going to be demanded and why they need to produce oil and gas and giving the investment story because they're not giving a great story when they're talking about ESG and the energy transition, and that's that's leaning into the net zero stuff which net zero is a 25 million barrel a demand drop by 2030 and that's not a good story for a case to hold oil and gas companies in their portfolios so there's a lot of messiness in terms of anti-oil and gas movement and the pressure on public companies and also what the public companies are saying so we get into this a lot in this presentation it is literally soup to nuts from everything going on in the world to everything going on in u.s shale to what's going on in the u.s economy um i really think you're going to enjoy it um the back second half which i'll have next week we we into we have great Q and A which I include in the, in the conversation um, but so we. In this podcast, we'll talk about G7 energy community. What's what's going on in Japan? Um, why that matters? We're talking about um, the strategic petroleum reserve, the pressure from the regulatory environment, and really the investment thesis and how this is weighing into investment and public perception and operator behavior. Um, and we do get into um, you know the the very low reinvestment rates um, in shale and what that means. So and how that does play into actually the bullish thesis as well. So really hope you guys enjoy this. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon, folks. Bye. I will introduce our awesome speaker for today, Ms. Trisha Curtis. Trisha is the president and CEO of Petronerds, a company she founded out of Denver in 2016. At Petronerds, Ms. Curtis leads research and consulting services. She is a macroeconomist with an expertise in U.S. shale markets. She also hosts the Petronerds podcast, which I highly recommend. Tricia completed her undergraduate work at Regis University in Denver, where she double majored in economics and politics, minored in criminology, and graduated summa cum laude. She has a master's from the London School of Economics in International Political Economy, and wrote her dissertation on Chinese national oil companies. Raised in Northwest Colorado, she grew up around pump jacks, and has worked in oil and gas sites in Colorado and Wyoming with her father. Please help me in welcoming Miss Curtis. Well, thank you very much. And thank you specifically, Taylor, because you um, invited me to come speak here. And I have to say, I have spoken a lot of places around the world, and I was pretty excited to get invited to come to Midland um, to speak, because I I am an oil field girl, and I love pump jacks. So I was uh, very excited to fly in. I would literally fly into Midland just to just to look out the window and see the pump jacks. Um, so, You'll have to bear with me a little bit today. If my hair's masked, it's because I had we were, I was in the field earlier, which was awesome, and had a hard hat on, um, and managed to change clothes really quickly and then head over here. And the slide deck, as all of them are, is way too long for an hour. Um, <clears throat> but I have to give another presentation after. So, um, And woke up early this morning. The world has changed uh, between when I woke up and now. Um, oil prices have backslid a few bucks um, so we'll talk about that so i'll basically in in about 30 minutes she's going to look at me and tell me you know i'll see where i'm at for slides i'll gauge you guys as an audience um if you want to you me to cut it to 50 minutes so we can do a little bit of q a or you can hang back and we can do more I have time um so i know but your time is limited and valuable so we will go through the world in uh in about an hour so uh Crude volatility, and if you haven't listened to the podcast, you absolutely should, because there's a wealth of knowledge in there. I'll try to turn this into one if I can. If not, I'll just make sure this is posted for you guys. But um, so the world is pretty volatile. We're going to cover everything from basically U.S. shale and the global oil market all the way into energy transition and the and ESG. And I will tell you, I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I think it's really important to pay attention to ESG and the energy transition, um, and we're going to start with that. I've not done this before, but we're going to try this now. So I just need to raise a hand if the, of the group here. Um, are you bullish or bearish, like where are you guys at? Are you bearish on oil prices? Raise your hand. Are you bullish on oil prices? Raise your hand. All right, that was the point. It's pretty big group think in the industry. Everybody's bullish on oil prices. Now, I'm not going to debunk that, but there's a lot of reasons I, I would like to unpack where that is because the entire industry by and large is pretty bullish on oil prices. Nothing on the demand side should make you bullish on oil price, especially today. The reason oil prices came off today is because demand data out of China is not that good. So there's nothing globally, from a global macro perspective, demand data that should say you should be bullish. Now, there's lots of other things that sh- can make you bullish. Certainly geopolitical factors, production factors, a lot there. But that's not necessarily bullish either in terms of long-term business. Um, on where are you bullish on oil demand? Okay. I gave you the answer to that one, but that's fine. Um, and are you bearish on oil demand? Okay. Well, we're got That's fine. We're not. We're not raising our hand in oil demand. That's fair. Um, all right. So who knows what ESG is? All right. Um, who knows? And how well would you say you guys are versed in the energy transition? Other than knowing what it, people talk about it, like what is it? What is it comprised of? Um, and what's what's it going to do? Do people feel really comfortable on that? Okay. So. Lots of questions, though. The reason I think it's really important um, is because this business, this oil and gas business, and you guys are an oily town. This is different than any other town. You don't get to see pump jacks when you fly in. You don't go to an airport in most towns and see advertisements for hydraulic fracturing, which is awesome. Um, So this town at least owns that it produces oil and gas. But increasingly around the world, that's less likely the case. And we produce oil in Colorado, but you certainly don't see oil ads when you fly into Denver. So major takeaways in this presentation, we're going to start with the oil prices in the market. We'll talk about why everyone is bullish. Um, ESG and um, I thought it was funny because I figured you guys would answer that way. ESG and the energy transition in the context of assets. So I'm not trying to, I do spend a lot of time in my podcast sort of ripping on ESG and the energy transition. And I don't mean that in, in a sort of about-face way. But the reason I want to talk about it is because it does really matter from an investment standpoint. It does really matter in terms of how your assets are actually valued. Because when we, the energy transition and what we're doing with it and net zero 2050, it gets really complex and really confusing. And it does matter in terms of the labor you have in the field. If, if people do not believe oil and gas is gonna be around in 10 years, it's gonna be pretty damn hard for you guys to get engineers into the field 10 years from now. So it's very important that people understand you know, what oil and gas is, how much we produce, why it matters, and also what the energy transition is and what it's trying to accomplish. And those don't necessarily compute with each other. Um, and it does matter. So education is really, really critical. And what you do have now is a trend in the oil and gas industry to talk a lot about the energy transition without a whole lot of context and not talk as much about The actual what you're doing in the business and how much oil we produce, why we need it. I mean we're producing a lot of oil and we're consuming a lot of oil and that's why you guys have a job but it's really important that that education is out there because most of it's about the energy transition right now. Um, And the labor piece is really important because I can go to, I don't know how many universities you guys go to or speak at or work with, but it's increasingly hard to get people in petroleum engineering programs today. Everyone in a petroleum engineering program already has a job, and it's increasingly hard to get kids recruited. And people are even having retention issues within their own oil companies, oil and gas companies, because younger people don't know how long this industry is going to be around. That is all really critical to make sure people understand, or you're not going to have the people, and we're going to continue to see a lot of inflation in the business. Now, so we'll talk about U.S. shale um, and natural gas, lots of natural gas, obviously low prices, prices dropped 13 cents today day already. Um, recession and crisis risk, um, something I noticed in, in Midland, um, and I, again, I love the town, so this is no discredit, but I think if you've, if you've been following the regional banking crisis and what's going on from Silicon Valley Bank all the way to First Republic, that happened over the weekend, if you're following any of that, we'll talk about that a little bit, um, but regional banks are our big theme right now, and that's because regional banks are um, people are pulling their money out of regional banks and putting it into bigger banks that they think have less risk and exposure. Well, regional banks, and there are definitely a few of these in town, and not discrediting any of those, but regional banks also have exposure to oil and gas, something nobody's talking about because a lot of folks really don't care about the risk to oil and gas, but they are talking about commercial real estate, and regional banks tend to have a disproportional share of, I mean, exposure to commercial real estate, and commercial real estate is the next shoe to drop in this economic saga that no one believes is going to crash, but it's a serious issue right now. So regional banks and commercial real estate are something to really pay attention to Um, and i think there are knock-on effects in oil and gas and the relationships that oil and gas has with regional banks to also pay attention to so we'll talk about that Um, high oil prices we we do have uh, yes they're 72 dollars a barrel but you know they were 83 bucks just a handful of days ago Um, so high oil prices with an ongoing war with ongoing inflation gets pretty tricky we've never been in a situation where we've had high oil prices and high inflation consistently we usually have one or the other yes high oil prices are a big component of high inflation but sticky inflation high oil prices a war in ukraine big tensions with china and the us lots of issues with china and energy and the energy transition china's relationship with europe all this gets all this is really interwoven very very tightly and um, so it gets very very messy very quickly so oil prices, I put this up at 6 o'clock this morning, obviously the world has changed since then. So we're at 72 and change for oil prices now. This is largely driven off of uh, worries on China demand. China ripped the bandit off zero COVID several months ago. We should have seen a big pop in oil. If, if China was going to demand a bunch of crude oil and that was going to be the savior, we should have seen a pop in crude oil prices a long time ago in terms of real demand. So the problem with oil prices is they're not really... they're. they're a decent gauge right now probably the single best trading gauge of what the economy is doing or going to do they're not necessarily always you know as you know royal prices don't day-to-day necessarily reflect supply and demand fundamentals so it gets a little tricky there something else to pay attention to and I say this in every presentation but I think it's really important is the traded volumes you can see over a five-year period how thin West Texas Intermediate oil. the traded volumes are. They've really, really come off. And so we get, because of that, we can get really exacerbated swings and moves because we have so many computers and algorithmic trading, trading on headlines. So they can see a bad Chinese data point and they can trade on that. The other thing that everybody's talking about today is the regional banking crisis. And, um, and what the Fed is going to do tomorrow, which is also a very big deal, and just the softness in the overall US economy. And so, if you're thinking we're going to recession, you think the US economy is going to be soft, you think China's not performing, you start making bets against oil. Um, and Brent has come off, that's a big deal because, you know, OPEC. Everybody talks about their floor or their desire to have $80 oil. That is partly why they cut output and partly, also partly why they cut output is because of the thinner volumes on oil and because the shorts that were in oil and they want $80 oil. They also cut output because I think they did not see China performing nearly as well um, as the rest of the world expected. And so they cut output going into recession. Unfortunately, OPEC is not very good at demand. They're pretty good at cutting supply or increasing supply, that's about it gauging demand and controlling demand is a lot harder of a story. And when you increase prices going into recession, it's not the recipe for, that you really want for, for maintenance of demand. So gas prices have come down. Um, this is Dutch TTF. This is European gas prices that went from $100 an MMBTU down to 12 and change today. Um, so that was in August. Um, we had 10 bucks an uh, MCF in August. You guys know this story very well. It's impacted your day-to-day businesses. I mean, the gas story can't be underscored enough in the U.S. that we have never, we had never seen as high gas prices that we saw last year since the shale revolution began. Since the start of this boom, we have not seen 650 an MCF for gas in the US, and that is what we saw last year. So that propelled a lot of companies to favor gas, or not not favor gas over oil, but it allowed companies to target condensate-rich areas, to target NG, you know, NGLs, to target gassier areas, which is great because you can go after the gas drive, that oil comes up with it, it's wonderful. Gas was sexy again last year. It is not now. Um, and so it's come off the cliff. And partly that's because you guys are so good at drilling and producing this stuff. We have a lot of natural gas in this country. And we had a very warm winter across the US, across Europe. That saved Europe, um, and it led to lower gas prices. But it's that warm weather that has really drawn down. Our storage levels are up. Um, and you can see this. It's, just, it's really remarkable. And I, 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 I know people know this, but this is production in the US. The black line is oil production, the yellow line is gas production, and it's so important to sort of stare at this because the U.S. is the largest oil and gas producer in the entire world by a decent margin right now. So, 12 and a half million barrels a day of crude oil—that is a pretty, pretty dramatic clawback from the shut-ins we had in COVID and negative oil prices, clawing that way back. And not, without as many rigs, without as many frac fleets—well, frac fleets have largely come back—but I mean, without as many rigs and with 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 it with inflation, with sticky and, um, employment, you name it. It's done this, and I sort of say this uh, not, not to push back against the bullish thesis, but it's really important to think about that, because when you push this industry and tell them they can't do something, the industry always, always responds and always performs every single time. And so it's interesting to me, because my entire course of my entire career, I've never met, I, I, largely the industry is bullish. And um, they forget that we're really good at what we do. Um, it's like Marcel saying, you know, it's the gas story, right? We did this to gas because we're so good at producing gas. We're producing 123 billion cubic feet per day. Yes, this is gross withdrawals, but that's, that's more than anyone in the world. It's double what Russia produces. It's a huge amount of production. And this working gas and storage, this really tells you the story this is our, you know, high, the, the top line for storage volumes, the bottom line. Whenever the storage gets, goes up, prices go down. And so we have a lot of natural gas in storage. Also really important to realize is that we have a lot of storage. This is billion cubic feet. Europe does not have that level of storage. So when you hear Europe storage levels are full, yes, they're full. They filled it up with Russian gas when it was flowing. They filled it up with our gas. Over the summer, then they had a warm winter and so they have gas in storage. But they don't have the volumes of storage that we do. So if winter comes again and it's not as warm as it was last time, they will go through that storage because they aren't producing natural gas and they don't like natural gas. And it's really important, again, for talking about the energy transition and talking about natural gas and what you guys do, that we don't complain that we don't mix these things up because you need to there's no one that's going to promote this industry except for the industry itself. Um, and so the uh, producing your own natural gas in your own country or getting it from other democratic countries is pretty important in the context of energy security, is extremely important in the context of national security and also um, economic security. So where are we in oil demand? This is IEA's um, outlook for oil demand. You can see that in the, in the back half of the year, they expect demand to outstrip supply. That was pretty interesting given this same piece of document, this was a a document that I paid for, so you didn't see this. Um, But this is oil demand from the IEA. OPEC has the same bullish outlook on oil demand. But the same day this came out, the leader of the IEA, the International Energy Agency, Fatih Barol, came out with an op-ed in the Financial Times, and he said that the energy transition was going a lot faster and more accelerated than people think. It was going really well. That same day, he has a report that comes out that says we're gonna demand 102 million barrels a day of crude oil by the end of this year. Those two things do not, they're not the same. So you can't have the energy transition off to the races and also have oil demand off to the races because one or two things, so something has to give. Um, And so the reality is the truth just isn't being said. Um, And it's important to understand that. This is a divergent demand outlook. So you can see the EIA is on the lower end by the end of 2023, that's OPEC and IEA. The point is demand is pretty hard to predict. It's probably not gonna be as high as people think. Historical rig count. You guys know this. I love that you have a sign outside by your bank that tells you the rig count every single day and prices. Every, every bank should actually say that. Um, this looks, you know, you've probably seen this chart a million times. Everybody says, why do we need to look at this? It is important to stare at this for just a minute. And the reason why is that, you know, here's where our rig count is now. Here's gas rigs in yellow, here's oil rigs in red, and here's the total rig in, in uh, black, and then oil prices. Now. Gas rigs actually have not moved down as much as we would many have thought with the drop in gas prices. And that's really because oil rigs actually tend to move down a little bit when gas prices go down, because that's extra money that oil companies are making that they're not getting. And so you tend to have a shift. And gas rigs, we're only, we only have 150 gas rigs. So we have 150 dry gas rigs, and we're producing 123 billion cubic feet per day of gas. I mean, it, we know how to do this. It is not difficult. If we built a pipeline out of them ourselves, we'd be producing even more. Um, So the point is, though, that this is where we were, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. Prices crash. We come down to here. We didn't go back to those levels. We didn't need to go back to those levels because everybody was doing it better. And the same thing goes for here. And this is actually where we flipped and everything went disproportionately horizontal drilling, especially here in the Permian. This is where we were pre-COVID, and we're not going to go back there because we don't need to. So we're about at the levels we're at. And that is saying a lot because we are producing 12 and a half million barrels a day with less than we were before. So we are clawing our way back and doing more with less. Um, That's despite um, where we are for the regulatory environment. And it is really, really important to talk about the regulatory environment because you guys increasingly say, the the Permian Basin, everybody who does the Dallas Fed survey, and, and I work with operators, I work with service companies, Increasingly, everyone says the burden of the regulatory environment, even though it's not perfectly concrete, and you know exactly what regulations are coming down the pipeline. That the concept is that you do have a um, an administration who is not in favor of domestic oil and gas production, and that does not bode well for long-term investment decisions. Nor does it bode well when the president of the United States gets on TV during the State of the Union and doesn't say and says, "Well, we might have natural, we might have, you know, we'll need oil for 10 years, maybe more than 10 years." 10 years is not a runway for investing in a business, especially a business like this, when you have, it's this capital intensive. So it's extremely important and it does weigh on the market. In addition to all the other things that the administration has done that is against oil and gas. Um, Draining the SPR to levels of, this was just in days of cover, in days of demand cover. We were at, we were here, 35 days of demand cover, 30 days of demand cover um, at a 20 million barrel day demand market, now we're here. Um, So we've lost a lot of days of cover. That is, to all of you bulls out there, this is part of the bullish story. We are nearly guaranteeing ourselves higher oil prices in the future. If we do not fill up this SPR, this is a big deal. If there was an issue in the Taiwan Straits, if we were to dabble in a kinetic war with China, this is going to matter and this needs to be filled up. but we have to, the energy, uh, this administration is pretty lost when it comes to hydrocarbons and actually understanding them, and so there's a big debate in the White House and I think with the Energy Administration on what we do with, um, what we do with the SPR. Now, permit approvals, also a very big deal. Not so much here, especially in Texas, because you guys don't have federal land like the, the rest of the country does, but in places like Wyoming and places in Colorado where there's federal land, but especially in places like Wyoming, even in North Dakota, anywhere there's federal land, Alaska, this is a very big deal. Places that we were drilling and producing for oil and gas, we are still drilling and producing for oil and gas, but we're not getting the permits. So that's pre-administration, that's Trump, this is Biden. Permit approvals have definitely come off. The website where you get this data, uh, the data's not there anymore. So that's a pretty big deal. If I can't get BLM data for permit approvals, uh, that's an issue and it's not transparent by this administration. I have a problem with it being a big data person and a nerd. Um, But the point is, so permit approvals are down for federal land re-up, so if you want to reapprove your permit, your existing permit, it's going to expire. Um, every administration, Trump, Obama, you name it, they re-approved those permits. This administration is not reapproving those permits. This will all have a long term impact in oil and gas development and oil and gas production in the US. And this is something that I do think the industry needs to be talking more about more about seriously because they have to you, you have to get Wall Street and you have to get people to understand what's going on. You can't just duck and cover and say this is gonna be fine, because if this continues, it's not going to be fine. Okay. The resident reason why this energy transition and stuff matters for um, for investment, um, especially for natural gas and what you guys do on a day-to-day basis and 10 years from now, this is the G7 energy communique. So this is what came out of, so this G7 meeting that was in Japan, this was a big deal between um, Japan and the White House have been talking about this for nearly two years on what this communication document was going to say in terms of actual investment in oil and gas. Now, basically said nothing in terms of um, oil. And you would have thought that given the war in Ukraine and the, the energy crisis we've had since that began and, and even before, that it would have said a little bit more on natural gas, and it didn't. So the document comes out on April 16th. It's heavy. It's, it's a very progressive document in many ways. It talks about a lot of things you, you wouldn't really expect to be in a G7 communique, energy communique. Um, but, and I might have missed my little, there we go investment in the so essentially it says you know 69 out of 72 bullet points you you read through the entire document which you did which was painful is essentially says that you know it might be appropriate. Investment in the gas sector can be appropriate to help address potential market shortfalls provoked by the crisis. And it gives all these qualifications. So the problem is this is not exactly. I don't know if you're investors in the room or your private equity backers or your bankers. You know, it might be or could be. Is really what folks want to hear when they're putting billions or millions of dollars into a project, especially like LNG, like an LNG, like a. You know, we're having trouble in the U.S. getting dollars to come in to build um, LNG export facilities. Not because we all know in this room and most people outside of this room, most people in the world know that we're going to demand natural gas for a long time. But it's this type of communication that says we're not going to demand natural gas for a long time or is very iffy on it that prevents people, bankers, private equity guys, everyone getting to the table and putting their dollars, putting their money where their mouth is and actually investing. And so if we don't have these export facilities, we're not... Our, that 123 BCF a day is just sitting there in storage. And we could be moving that all around the world, game-changing energy security for everyone, lowering CO2 emissions like crazy, especially in Asia. But we're not, because the movement against oil and gas is so big. And that's why it's really important to understand the energy transition and what people are doing. Um, this also came out of the, uh, from on the back of the G7. This is, again, the energy Informa- International Energy Agency, IEA. Um, This is their projection in their net zero and super important. So a lot of folks talk about net zero and I understand companies are going and I do rip on it and I am critical of it. But that's because companies talk about going net zero by 2050 um, for, for emissions. Right. They say it's emissions. But the problem is, is that net zero by 2050, that came from the UN, it came from the International Energy Agency about net zero emissions globally, which means that what that actually means is, according to the IEA, based on that G7 document I just showed you, this is what they say for net gas. So net gas, the oil and gas industry thought was going to be safe because we all need it. We know we're going to need it. And, and if you listen to Baker Hughes earnings call, if you listen to ConocoPhillips Investor Day, if you listen to Liberty Energy's earnings call, all of them are doubling down on nat gas like crazy because we all know that nat gas is going to be the long game. But this is the drop you have to go to. Um, you have to, you have to go to a quarter of natural gas consumption today. We the world consumes four hundred billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. We're going to have to go down to a quarter of that by 2050 to get to net zero. That's according to the IEA. That's a big problem for, again, for investment. So this is the same thing that came out of this document. This is LNG trade. So if they're telling you here's our capacity, but here's what our our trade's gonna be by 2035, it's gonna go down, no one's gonna invest in this. No one's gonna invest in long, put long-term contracts in LNG. This is really problematic for day-to-day business and and oil and gas business. So this gets really cumbersome and really constraining. and it is messy. And the energy transition realities are this. So this document, um, if you haven't read it, JP Morgan's annual energy document is fantastic. It's available to the public. Um, and you know, Chris Wright and others talk about this. Um, but I don't think a lot of people really appreciate is that you know, here's our, our share of primary energy um, since, since 1965. I don't call them fossil fuels. I call them traditional fuels, crude oil, natural gas, and coal. I think we need to remove fossil fuels from the vocabulary, just like the K in fracking was never there, has a pretty negative connotation. Um, So here's where we were in 1965, about 95%, and here's where we are now, um, just over 80%. So we're still using a lot. And the point that people say about this is that you have to add energy into the mix, because we tend to consume more, not less. We have never had an energy transition ever where we've replaced a fuel. Coal consumption, global coal consumption is this. Coal production is in purple, coal consumption is in orange. That's global, global coal consumption. Um, despite all the rhetoric on the energy transition, we have continued to increase coal consumption, largely from India, largely from China, but still, it's very real. This is natural gas. So those documents on natural gas, I do have a huge bone to pick with because this is natural gas production and consumption for the world, 400 BCF a day. It only has one way to go, and that's up. Especially if you're trying to decarbonize, if you're pulling coal out of your system, if you are adding renewables, and they are incredibly intermittent, and they're poor forms of power, you are damn sure going to need a lot of natural gas. So absolutely, if you're a company, you need to invest in it. But you also need to be out there talking about the story and explaining. I mean, every investment thesis is a story. To get investors and everybody to the table, you have to be telling a story. And I do not believe this industry is telling the, they're not telling the whole story. They're telling pieces of the story and hoping that everything's going to fall into place, um, and it's a lot messier than that. And this is the problem. So this is John Podesta with the White House. He's the big, one of the big climate czars and running climate change stuff. He came out and said this energy transition is bigger than the internet. So that's, that's, I mean, that's a bet. I don't think not, it's not bigger than the internet right now. It's also wind, solar, and batteries. Um, That's it, it's wind, solar, and batteries and stop uh, stop producing and using oil and gas, which is very difficult to do. Um, That's the article that the IEA came out with that clean energy is moving faster than you think. Same day, they said we're going to be consuming 102 million barrels a day of crude oil. Uh, This is our exports of LNG in purple, you can see we're we're exporting about 12 BCF a day. Every molecule that we can get on the water um, is another molecule in terms of like stabilizing natural gas prices abroad, lowering those prices. And actually, the the more molecules we put on the water, the more stable we create a global market for this natural gas. So there's huge, huge benefits to it. Um, Skipping really quick into U.S. shale, I don't know where we're on time, but okay. So shale companies are not, US shalers, you guys in the room are not reinvesting. We're at an incredibly low reinvestment rate um, in this black line here. This will catch up with us. Now this, again, this goes with the bullish thesis if you're bullish on oil and gas, but I have a problem with this. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say the reason it's this low is for what reason? So it's kind of artificial there. So a lot of the oil and gas companies say, absolutely we need to return money to shareholders. 100%, I agree with you, but shale industry burned through. Tons of cash, tons of money, and, and now they're returning money to shareholders. But also, they've leaned into the energy transition a lot. And also, they have a lot of ESG and energy transition pressure on them, and they have investor pressure, and they're trying to get into long only portfolios, and they're trying to get managers to, to, to advocate for their company. And so, it's not necessarily working that way. So, you know, we have big companies that are spending billions and billions of dollars of CapEx in energy transition stuff, into wind, into solar, into batteries, into carbon sequestration. I'm not saying you shouldn't reduce your methane emissions and you shouldn't do what's right. You should absolutely do that. But it's more complicated than that. And when oil prices were higher than they were right now, and you're putting the money into energy transition stuff, it takes a long time to get a return on that investment, if ever, because a lot of this stuff doesn't actually return money. So if I'm a shareholder, I don't know if that's the best way to go. Nor do I think share buybacks at these price levels are necessarily the best way to go either. Oil and gas companies make money, hand over fist, right now from oil production. So the logic would hold, you might want to put a little bit more into drilling and producing oil. Um, but that's the, it's problematic because then share would rev up, except this investment rate doesn't work. And it holds this bullish thesis. But eventually, um, the, tailwinds for, the tailwinds for doing this and being sort of anti-oil and gas domestically was also uh, Paris Climate Accords. The administration jumping into the Paris Climate Accords, re-signing the Paris Climate Accords, um, the Climate Change Executive Order 14008, canceling Keystone Excel, you name it, tons of stuff. If there was a shift in politics, which there could be in the future, and we pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords um, or did different things, that this thesis might not look quite as clear. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to understand this from you know, especially. Cash flow from operations. If you're making that much money from operations, it is very hard to me that you know, spending a little bit more money on, on producing a little bit more oil, if you have that bullish of a thesis, that makes sense. And also the share buybacks, companies are just spending so much money on share buybacks, which is also not, th- that's the prerogative of the companies. However, we tend to have transitory investor pressure, as in investor pressure shifts. Investors in 2015 wanted everyone to buy into the Permian at any and all costs. $50 a barrel, they didn't care, they wanted everyone here in the Permian Basin, so everyone did it. They took on massive amounts of debt, and then investors turned around and said, now we need you to make money. And that was slightly more difficult to do now that everybody spent all this money. And so that's an example of that investor pressure. And now the investor pressure is return money to shareholders, share buybacks. Share buybacks don't necessarily return money to shareholders. Share buybacks is the companies are telling you that my company is not valued at what I think it should be valued, and therefore I'm going to do share buybacks. At some point, in le- when, if the company does not get valued at what the company thinks it should be valued, then the share buyback thesis has to go out the window as well. So I'm just saying we have to put all this in context of you know, what we should be doing with this money. Dividends are great. That's a great way to get along only portfolio. But the share buyback thesis is a little, is a little bit tricky. And just something we should put in context. The the compounded risks and uncertainties are also huge. this is just a list of the big ones from when I talk to clients from what the Dallas Fed survey, from what people talk about is, you know, overall uncertainty in terms of prices. Even though most people are bullish, there's still a lot of uncertainty. The, the price outlooks and the variability in those outlooks, uh, recession risks, bank failures, um, the, this looming regulatory risk that people can't really quantify uh, or qualify perfectly, but they know it's there um, and they don't know if we're going to f- refill the SBR or not. Um, the labor availability and shortages really serious, as I said it is it 's real you guys feel on a day to day basis now, but we 're definitely seeing it in the future of just being able to have people educated and in the field this is this is not just oil and gas this is every business of getting people to work but it 's very serious for oil and gas, given all the reasons I mentioned and the fact that oil and gas is not a loved industry um, and so people don 't think they don 't think it 's going to exist and they don 't think they want to work in it um, permitting delays that is really serious inflation and rising costs inflation again supply chain issues um, so, if you look at actual production and how it's stacked up, and where you sort of want to be, where you don't want to be, and you guys are in the Permian Basin, so I don't know how much you 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 know are deeply involved and know what's what goes on in maybe the Marcellus or Colorado, but I put this chart up for folks in, in Colorado a lot to show where Colorado's at where Alaska is in California. These are declining production states. They shouldn't be. They got the resources, but they are from the regulatory perspective. Because in Colorado, we had some significant um, legislative changes for permitting where companies can't get permits um, or they reduce those permits significantly. And so production in blue has really come off from from the highs and come down. Um, Alaskan production is in red. It's steadily declining. California production, that's really, really serious. So um, it's the state to follow because California loses about 3,000 barrels a day every single month in production because that's a state that is not favorable to oil and gas. Um, And it's something to really appreciate because this is a state that's favorable to oil and gas. This is a drill baby drill. If you want to do business, you can do business here. And that's incredibly important for all business, not just oil and gas. That's New Mexico by, you know, just by comparison. I always show this for Colorado because um, the states that are not open for investment, the money will go elsewhere, the businesses will go elsewhere. We have plenty of companies located based in Denver, in Colorado, that have assets in uh, New Mexico, and they've been off to the races. And the reason I point this out is because, you know, when we talk about oil and gas production, where it's, flatlined or declined in some basins, flatlined production in North Dakota, flatlined production in Powder River Basin in Wyoming, flatlined production in, or declining in Colorado, flatlined production in Eagleford. It's not in the Permian, especially in the Delaware. It is, no matter what oil prices, it is, is up and to the right. Um, and that's, you can look at individual companies and break out their production profo- profiles and that's what you'll see. Uh, what prices you need to, be, you guys know this well, I don't pretend to be, you know, to say this is correct. Again, this came from the Dallas Fed survey, but I like it. And this is, uh, when I go to DC or I go abroad, I, I walk people through this. But I do think the inflation piece of is serious. It's something that was finally talked about a, a decent amount toward the back half of last year. I think the inflation piece of getting people in the field, um, actually getting equipment, everything, its it's a very big component. So the level of being able to Produce a barrel of oil, yes, we can still do it at $75 a barrel. Are your margins a little thinner? I'm guessing you would say, yes, your margins are probably a little bit thinner because everything costs more. And that inflation piece really matters, and we'll get into that shortly. Um, average lateral length, I can't, I, I tell a lot of people about this. You guys know this because you do it, um, but it's awesome. And I was in the field today, and we're, you know, obviously can't see the lateral, but knowing that I'm standing there and it's going out three miles is pretty incredible because. That feet of, on average, in the Midland, here in the Midland, the average well is 12,000 foot. Um, and that's just impressive on average, because you know, years, a handful of years ago, it was 8,000. And those incremental movements are serious. And so when people are you know, bullish on oil prices, I understand that, even though I have some bones big with it. But I'm pretty bullish on the rock, and I'm very, very bullish on the industry, because these incremental movements, this little bit of changes in understanding the rock a little bit better, being able to drill slightly longer laterals, being able to consistently drill slightly longer laterals, and not having a massive diminishing marginal returns when you're normalizing on the barrels per foot basis, that is huge. And I can tell you, lots of people don't understand this. I don't think folks on Wall Street truly understand this because they don't love your business anymore. Um, and I don't think the Saudis understand this. I don't think a lot of folks understand these incremental shifts. Um, so the rock has a lot left to give. We just have a lot of above ground sort of thinking. Um, and same across the, across the country, the laterals have gotten longer. Now, Actual completions, and this is where you can actually see that ESG pressure, that investor pressure, really clearly. So the the companies that are, you can see this in in this is Permian completions, and Permian completions. The bar chart is the total completion. So they've come. Permian completions are what better than they were pre-COVID, which is impressive, right? So off to the races, everybody's doing great. That's public companies in purple. Yes, they've they've. There's a lot of them, um, but you can see the red, which is private companies. That's they've exceeded the level that they were doing in um, pre-COVID, which is very, very impressive. Because if all these private companies responding to oil prices really quickly, being very nimble, does tell you a lot about investor pressure. Because the private companies are able to do are able to just go to town and start drilling completing wells. And they have helped meaningfully contribute to production here um, in the Permian Basin and meaningfully contribute to production in the US, and meaning, meaningfully, therefore, contributing to global production um, and energy security. This is total US completions. Again, stacked up here. We have not come back almost to where we were pre-COVID, and that's largely because the public companies haven't fully come back yet. They haven't come back in, in Williston, they haven't come back in the powder, they haven't come back almost to every other basin, largely because of that investor pressure. And I, this does really matter in terms of U.S. output, U.S. geopolitical leverage, uh, energy securities. It's really meaningful um, and important. Um, That's just total US completions. You can see that's private, again, well above what it was pre-COVID. And that's public, well below what it was pre-COVID. That is your ESG investor pressure, everything weighing on these companies. Um, which is just a reality. And again, this is why I think it's really important for these oil companies, especially public ones, to tell their story better, especially if, if for nothing else, for share price performance, um, to say you know, why we're going to be here for the long haul um, and why this product really does matter for the long haul. Um, that's just rig count, public and private rig count. You can see, again, same thing. Private companies are ahead of where they were pre-COVID. Public companies are, um, are slightly lower. Um, that's Permian. You've, public companies have come back we started to see that flip huge response in just to oil prices and if we see where they're at um where these companies are at i i try to show this basically to make one point really clearly the whole tier one to tier four acreage thesis uh we've cored out everything we've drilled up all the good stuff we don't have any enough wells left i understand that that's many people follow that line of thinking and I, I don't, um, and that's largely because the, the orange rigs you see here are the public companies. They are drilling in the core, they have the core of the core, it's great. But every time a public company buys a company that's not on the core, then they call it the core. So, you know, that core gets extended. Um, but all those purple companies, those rigs, are private companies. And you can clearly see they're not drilling in the core because they don't have that. Well, high oil prices and high gas prices do something wonderful. They de-risk some acreage, they let private companies go out, and they're ready to, I mean, 650 in mcf gas everybody you got wildcatters going for gas everybody wants to i mean it changes the business and so the purple um another way to look at this this is drilled but uncompleted wells this is just being a don't get hung up on what a drilled but uncompleted well is we can spend two hours after lunch you know debating that this is a hole that has been drilled waiting on completion Some of them won't get completed, yes, most of them will. um, But that's all the private companies, and this is all the public companies. So that tells you these are holes that somebody spent money on, drilled them, poked them into the ground, and those are all the purple ones. Far bigger than that sort of cored out stuff, which tells me a lot, especially when we look at, obviously, Permian Basin production is way up. Over 20,000 MCF a day you're producing in the basin. That's just incredible. That's just largely associated gas. the reason that map is incredible is because you would expect, with all the very negative theses on oil production is declining and U.S. shale will never come back, just pull up the Financial Times, read the Wall Street Journal, read Bloomberg, the very negative sentiment on U.S. shale. That's also not positive. I know every, all the bulls think that's positive for oil prices and oil stock prices. It's not positive for the stock prices because, again, the stocks are not, the companies are not telling the story to why they need to be invested in for the long haul. Um, what we're seeing, though, is that productivity has not declined is not, not meaningfully declined. So if, I'm, if I've got all these companies stepping out of their core acreage and I've got longer laterals, I, you know, the thesis would go, okay, the shale skeptics would say, then my productivity should decline. These are all, this is uh, Colorado, Wyoming, North Dakota, Wilson Basin, Powder River Basin, Eagleford, Permian Basin, Anadarko Basin, all into one, that's normalized for productivity. And you would expect that black line, which is 2022 to be smashed down and it's not. Gas, way outperformed last year because gas was so great, which tells you that in the oil plays, folks are targeting natural gas or were targeting natural gas. And it's great because that gas drive, again, helped oil. It's a great nerdy story. I love it.